Sure, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I think maybe just to give us like a quick uh, overview, I'll issue another retraction to to the late great Dave McGowan, because I think we said in our Q and A episode that he didn't really talk about Phil Oaks or Judy Sill. Mm-hmm. But in ter- he actually, I went back and looked, and actually he does mention them literally back to back with each other. He has a couple pages about Judy Sill, kind of covering what we talked about. Um, and then a short, he, he didn't have a whole chapter about Phil Oaks, though I think Phil Oaks definitely could have deserved his own chapter, uh, a big one. So I, I'll just read like the tiny like, greatest hits of, um, of how McGowan characterized Phil Oaks before we can get in. Because every other source we're going to talk about, for the most part, is a very valorized, hagiographic, like the 60s, you know, kind of thing. So. Yeah. Okay, so McGowan, here's what McGowan wrote. Phil Oakes, a folk singer, songwriter, and political activist, was found hanged in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, on April 9, 1976. Throughout his life, Oakes was one of the most overtly political of the 1960s rock and folk music stars. A regular attendee at anti-war, civil rights, and labor rallies, Oakes appeared to be at all times an unwavering political leftist. He named his first band the Singing Socialists. That all changed, however, and rather dramatically, in the months before his death. Born in El Paso, Texas, on December 19, 1940, Phil and his family moved frequently during the first few years of his life. His father, Dr. Jacob Oakes, had been drafted by the U.S. Army and assigned to various military hospitals in New York, New Mexico, and Texas. In 1943, Dr. Oakes was shipped overseas, returning two years later with a medical discharge. Upon his return, he was immediately institutionalized and didn't return to his family for another two years. During that time, he was subjected to every psychiatric, quote, treatment imaginable, including electroshock therapy. When he finally returned to his family in 1947, he was but a shell of his former self, described by Phil's sister as, quote, almost like a phantom. Beginning in the fall of 1956, Phil Oakes began attending Staunton Military Academy, the very same institution that future serial killer cult leader Gary Heidnick would attend just one year after Oakes graduated. Mm. During Phil's two years there, a friend and fellow band member was found swinging from the end of a rope. <laughs> and he puts in parentheses, I probably don't need to add here that the death was ruled a suicide. Okay. <laughs> um, but following graduation, Phil enrolled at Ohio State University but not before, oddly enough, having a little plastic surgery done to alter his appearance, doing such things, needless to say, was rather uncommon in 1958. We'll return to that in a second. That's weird. Uh, in early 1962, just months before his scheduled graduation, Oakes dropped out of college to pursue a career in music. By 1966, he had released three albums. In 1967, under the management of his brother, Michael Oakes, Phil moved out to L.A., Michael had begun working the previous year as an assistant to Billy James, who maintained a party house at 8504 Ridpath in, you guessed it, Laurel Canyon. As the 1970s rolled around, and with his career beginning to fade, Phil Oakes began to travel internationally, usually accompanied by vast quantities of booze and pills. 
Those travels included a visit to Chile, not long before the U.S.-sponsored coup that toppled Salvador Allende. In the summer of 1975, Phil Oak's public persona abruptly changed. Adopting the name John Butler Train, Oakes proclaimed himself a CIA operative and presented himself as a belligerent right-wing thug. He told an interviewer that, quote, On the first day of summer 1975, Phil Oakes was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel by John Train. For the good of societies, public and secret, he needed to be gotten rid of. That symbolic assassination on the summer solstice took place at the same hotel that Devin Wilson had flown out of just a few years earlier. One of Oakes' biographers would later write that Phil slash John actually believed he was a member of the CIA. Also in those final months of his life, Ox began compiling curious lists with entries that apparently reference U.S. biological warfare research. He gives a few examples here. Shellfish toxin, Fort Detrick, Cobra venom, Chantilly racetrack, hollow silver dollars, New York Cornell Hospital. (laughs) Many years... Yeah, right? Uh, uh, And I was going to bring this up, but McGowan does... This is an interesting thing to keep in mind throughout the story. Many years before Oakes's metamorphosis, in an interesting bit of foreshadowing, psychological warfare operative George Estabrooks explained in his book Hypnotism how U.S. intelligence agencies had been working to create the perfect spy. Quote, we st- and I think we've read this in our Estabrooks episode, but just to reiterate... We start with an excellent subject. We need a man or woman who is highly intelligent and physically tough. Then we start to develop a case of multiple personality through hypnotism. In his normal waking state, which we will call personality A or PA, this individual will become a rabid communist. He will join the party, follow the party line, and make himself as objectionable as possible to the authorities. Note that he will be acting in good faith. He is a communist, or rather his PA is a communist, and will behave as such. Then we develop personality B, the secondary personality, the unconscious personality, if you wish, although this is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. This personality is rabidly American and anti-communist. It has all the information possessed by PA, the normal personality, whereas PA does not have this advantage. My super spy plays his role as a communist in his waking state, aggressively, consistently, fearlessly, but his PB is a loyal American and PB has all the memories of PA. As a loyal American, he will not hesitate to divulge those memories. So Estabrooks never explained what would happen if the programming were to go haywire and personality B were to emerge and become the conscious personality, but my guess is that such a person would be considered a severe liability and would be treated accordingly. They might even find themselves swinging from the end of a rope. Phil Oakes was 35 at the time of his death. So... That's a hypothesis right there. Yeah. And it does map somewhat cleanly onto the trajectory of Phil Oakes' life and kind of deterioration. Now, Mm -hmm. there's other things that uh, could be said about, like, his final days and maybe even his, quote-unquote, mental illness itself. This also harks back to, I think, all the stuff we were just saying about the Unabomber, Ted yeah. Kaczynski, and talking about the idea of mental illness and in, are you a nut? Are you insane? You know, yeah. uh, I think that in Phil Oaks's case, he was definitely kind of uh, unhinged at the end. But yes. I th- But it's like 
the, he, okay, so more so than I think <laughs> Ted Kaczynski is to this day. Like you know, in terms of just like uh, practical or uh, like microcosmic things, like just his demeanor, like his affect, his ability to like speak cogently. Like I listened to that sort of the last interview that he gave as John Train. Oh, and yeah. like, you oh. know, just the way that he speaks like Ted Kaczynski, like it's a different situation where like, you know, uh, he's very uh, opposed to Kaczynski. That is, as opposed to like any characterization of him as insane. And like he can make an argument like that. He's doing what he's doing based on political convictions, which I think, you know, is something is a bit more valid to, to consider. You know, we uh, said our piece about Kaczynski like in that episode, but, uh, you know, in like uh, the merits of like some of his views and, and everything that was going on with him and his background and things. But, um, you know, it's just very different from uh, the like train slash Oaks as he appears like in those interviews where he's just like floating wildly from topic to topic, you know, having these kind of like weird grandiose fantasies of like calling up uh, Muhammad Ali and like uh, talking yeah. to him and like uh, and getting take, Ramsey get, like managing Ramsey Clark's campaign for president yeah yeah <laughs> and like some really of the all themes over the place. I mean some of the themes are things that he was in like invested in throughout his whole career like I mean so fame celebrity like fights uh yeah. you know or sort of a like athletic uh you know combat type stuff and you know Cowboys. and also like presidential campaigns yeah he's obsessed with john wayne you know one of the things that he scribbled like you know later on in his life was like this idea to like a, a concert to save new york or something and he he seemed to always like return to this idea of like assembling all of these big celebrities together to like save the day somehow like uh somehow like get like putting celebrities together like for a while it was all about getting Che Guevara's brain into Elvis's body and things like that you know like yeah. uh that was like a, a fascination of his and it seems to like come out in that uh sort of you know uh scrambled state but I mean it's it's it, he's very different just like in the practicalities of like you know uh being able to speak uh in a sort of lucid way like even uh like even we are able to stay more on topic than, you know, <laughs> even if we are able to follow like a single line of conversation better than than he's able to uh, at the end. No, um, totally, totally. Yeah. And I think what's what's notable and kind of like a, a difference between, say, like him and the Unabomber is that you really see like the deteriorate the psychological kind of deterioration over the course of like the last five, maybe five, six, seven years of his life compared to how he would talk in interviews and like the banter he would give at concerts and the kind of clarity of his songwriting and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He seemed to be very, very like with it. And then he's kind of talking like Joe Biden, like at the end and he's only 35, you know? Yeah. And a lot of that of course is, is the Koof juice. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's arguably, legal, yeah. it, it, it is the destroyer of many an artist. Yeah. Um, I think. Yes, definitely. But also, like, one thing that's, like, tricky about the Phil Oaks narrative, I mean, first of all, he's not, he's well-known, but there isn't, like, a huge fount of, of kind of information about him. So what yeah. you're left with are these very kind of hagiographical kind of accounts that want to dress him up almost as, like, the perfect, tragic 1960s folk hero yeah and like literally uh, like folk hero and like, like folk kind of martyr yeah it kind of actually like there's a mythology that i think was really in his own mind 
but also like a lot of the sort of uh, treatments of his life play into is sort of the dichotomy between him and Dylan. Like even as you said, yeah. like the idea that they like both split off into different, two different things. And uh, in one of the documentaries that I watched, uh, Chords of Fame, right, which mm -hmm. is like this weird kind of like I think you, you call it like a PBS type thing. It's weird because it's like reenactments and stuff, and they have like someone. It's playing like a docu play. It's yeah, like a televised docu play yeah, kind of thing. Right. And I think it's from the 80s. Yeah, it's a weird, like, little documentary. But, uh, you know, they even say that he was, like, he was basically obsessed with Dylan. And he, um, you know, was always kind of bitter that he didn't have the same success as Dylan had. Which I think does kind of bear itself out in some of his writings and in some of his statements that there was, like, a little bit of a fixation with Dylan. But, I mean, like, you know, in order to be, like, in that world... I mean, we'll go into this maybe a little bit, like, you know, his... Uh, like in order to just like want to be like a folk star, which I think he did, you know, it wasn't just like he was doing this in like sort of a, a selfless way where it's like, this is the best way to reach people. You know, like he definitely had like the motivation to be, he wanted fame in some way. Um, everybody says that about him. Like yeah. everybody that knew him. Um, and I watched, uh, I think it was there, but for fortune is the kind of official 2010 documentary. Yeah. that was made about him that interviewed all these people that knew him and also people that definitely didn't like Sean Penn and Christopher Hitchens who were yeah. just like shoehorned into it. It's a very like vanity documentary that has, if you thought the Eagles documentary was boomery, <laughs> like you have no idea. Like yeah. it, it is I wish so, I had watched it now if it was. Yeah. That's why I said that. like the torrent file of it. Cause yeah. you can't stream it anywhere. I guess they think they don't want people seeing it. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like very glossed over. I mean, you know, it has to talk about the John Train thing. And it does have like good, it has video of him being John Train and yeah. also like earlier footage of him. So it was good to watch for that. But like the talking head commentary, it did this thing that all these like, I, I think the documentaries kind of evolved a little bit when they got better production values. But I feel like particularly in the 2000s, there's a very kind of like, like tacky like hype promotional kind of style of documentary i think even like we live in public is an example even though i think that's like a good documentary but like the talking heads in that yeah. are always like it was the early days of the internet man yeah. <laughs> like you think like a modem could or like uh, josh harris like they always have something so witty and like re well rehearsed like a soundbite mm -hmm. to like throw out at like the interviewer and they're just speaking in these like generalities and like in this case, it, it it's like, you know, like the 50s, that Eisenhower stuff was over. Like the 60s were starting. JFK was president. Like the Jetsons were on TV. <laughs> and us kids were ready to like go wild and like cut to like footage of like a rock and roll sock hop. Like just like really obvious. <laughs> it, it hits all the stereotypes of like the 60s yeah. like from a boomer perspective. It's yeah, and basically uh, like the mixed same, with yeah. uh, mixed yeah. with a very kind of like crunchy granola nostalgia for like the purity of like the 1960s like Greenwich Village folk scene and just how like oh they went on civil rights marches which is you know obviously it was like that was good yeah. like I, I think well, it's great I mean, that they were I would also uh, say that, like, struggling for yeah, I mean, progressive I would, causes right like, right no the aspects of it that were like positive like the you know the, the support for civil rights and the political involvement that some of those figures had like definitely was good but I think that, like, you know, I think that the, the corruption of, like, that good seed that was there and, like, the sort of, you know, direction that, like, that went in is, like, was a big factor in what 
like drove him like phil oaks ultimately like like crazy like uh over the edge yeah yeah i think you know and i mean you know like that's not to say that it wasn't like that there weren't like uh mk like aspects to it either like that it was just like you know this uh sort of tragic narrative of uh you know disillusionment or whatever i think that like you know parts of that were like by design like i think that a lot of that was like stage managed like some of the you know the aspects of that whole scene but yeah i think that you know like he seems to have like a real like loathing for it in a lot of respects like what what happens and i think yeah some of it is like i said maybe bitterness like towards like certain figures like in it but yeah it's it's yeah yeah. i mean he did have a complicated relationship i think with bob dylan they were friends at first like in the early 60s when dylan was kind of coming up and then i think they shared the same manager for a while was that uh albert grossman Grossman, yeah albert grossman and he then eventually too right like he did yeah like not just dylan but a couple of of big like folk figures yeah the, i mean there were a lot of people kind of floating around like scooping up this talent in the early 60s you also had joan Baez, who yeah. kind of comes from definitely a like weird scenes like mm-hmm. a, like a top tier like weird scenes kind of family i think her father was a scientist who worked on some kind of top secret shit with the pentagon and then i think was an mit professor I had an Alex Constantine book that talked about like Joan Baez and Phil Oaks kind of side by side as, Mm -hmm. you know, or basically not necessarily saying like Joan Baez was like an op, but (laughs) that she was somebody who had like inside, you know, got to see up close, like kind of how the sausage was made and was kind of like rebelling in her own way against it, but also knew that there's like, she inherently knew there were limits and that, you know, you can only go so far, go so far if you wanted to have, like a real career. And I guess she did get kind of soft blacklisted in some respects for being like outspoken and political. But anyways, I mean, this whole folk scene, I think, I think we got to examine it a little more closely as we've done with <laughs> like the San Francisco psychedelic scene and like the Grateful Dead and like Palo Alto as we've done with Laurel Canyon and all of those weird scenes that were going, you know, a, a little bit later in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, before those things really kicked off, the really hot music scene that all the hip beats and other people were focused on was this Greenwich Village, like, folk rock scene. Yeah. Um, I guess there was that Cambridge Club, too, that we talked about. Yeah, I think sure, I remember in that. Our, yeah. uh, that Joan Baez played at and... I forget what the the guy in the I think McGowan went into it, but the guy who ran that club had like a weird yes, kind of background, and of course Cambridge. Him. You know, I don't know. It was like Henry Murray going to like the folk club and like enjoying <laughs> the jams in between, like psychologically torturing Ted Kaczynski in 1962, or like going there on acid. You know. Yeah, I'm trying. To I mean, I think Tim Leary hung out there, and all the like all the psychedelic people. They're even though they didn't, they seem to be some. I don't know actually. I don't know if I can say that they were totally separate worlds, but I felt like in a way, maybe they actually kind of hatched from the same place, but Mm -hmm. then went off on like different trajectories for a few years. And then they eventually like reunited and became kind of psychedelic folk rock in the late 60s. Because if you think about it, right? Like, yeah, like at the remember we read uh, we just read that like Bureau of Narcotics memo that was in Alston Chase's book mm-hmm. where it described the top down distribution of LSD in the early sixties. Right. And how they were saying that like the, 
the origins of this drug is like in university towns, among intellectuals and people of high status that are giving it out. And then, you know, mid-level people, upperclassmen, give it to lowerclassmen, et cetera. And so since we know that Tim Leary was literally giving it to undergrads like in 1961, 62, with the full endorsement of Henry Murray and that Cambridge, Massachusetts also had one of the earliest like uh, like folk beatnik clubs that Joan Baez was playing at. And then that eventually just sort of like spread down or, or I guess, you know, sort of like it definitely had a strong connection to like Greenwich Village and that whole scene. But then it's not like everybody in Greenwich Village, like it's not like everybody was taking acid in like 1962 in Greenwich Village. But there, but there were like some people like, say, Allen Ginsberg floating around who had mm-hmm. taken LSD. Maybe he gave out some of it to his friends, you know, but I think it was on a very uh, low level at that point. And then it kind of like between the Milbrook Institute or the Milbrook Estate and Palo Alto and Los Angeles and the Merry Pranksters, they started like spreading it around the country as folk music was coming up as this kind of a really a little bit more sober, political, like earnest kind of music movement. But then in Laurel Canyon, you get like the combo with, I think the birds kind of uh, represent it quite well, right? I mean, yeah. they literally well, I mean, blow up like with a Bob Dylan song, but like psychedelic, electric, and like soaked in acid. Right. And I then, mean, you can't neglect either like, you know, the transatlantic connection of like the Beatles, like, you know, uh, and their oh the Beatles influence yeah the, the Beatles, Beatles uh, well they yeah. started doing acid around what 1965 um yeah I, I guess so and di- didn't Bob Dylan give it the, either the, either they Bob Dylan gave them acid or yeah I watched yeah, some it was of that like vice recent versa. Beatles thing I mean we have to do like a sus Beatles episode at some point because they're like we really incredibly do. sus but um yeah i watched that beatles documentary and one thing that came through is that they were like obsessed with bob dylan too so uh yeah they seem to have like some relationship and there was even some talk that like bob dylan was going to come in and join the bands like uh you know instead of someone else i forget who they're kicking out at any given time but anyway uh yeah like uh that i mean obviously that was like a huge part of everyone's consciousness was like the beatles i mean phil oaks even mentions them as being like the like, you know, sort of uh, uh, catalyst for a lot of these changes that were happening. Even yeah. like there seems well, was to be he a like, Beatles. Was he kind of a Beatles hater a little bit? He was a little bit of a Beatles hater. He was like kind of like, you know, I mean, there's a couple of people who we went back and forth of like Pete Seeger, you know, like in Love Me, I'm a Liberal. He talks shit about Pete Seeger, but he also like had a certain admiration for him uh, that comes through in other cases. Um, and yeah, Pete Seeger covered one of his songs. So they were like ultimately yeah um i feel like it's more of a dig on people that like go listen to pete seeger but aren't really like taking him seriously kind of thing i mean but still like someone was like i'm an asshole and i listen to some jihad like you know you know it's still kind of like if one of our friends did that we'd be like what the fuck like yeah i love to listen to sj yeah yeah exactly i think everything is a gin yeah exactly like yeah jimmy don't get any ideas. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. As you know, I'm a folk singer for the FBI.
about the Kennedy assassination called the crucifixion. Studded sky. The stars settle slowly and lonely as they lie. Till the universe explodes as a falling star is raised. The planets are paralyzed, mountains are amazed, but they all glow brighter from the brilliance of the blaze. With the speed of insanity, then he died. 